And this afternoon we're going to uh, just look at a couple of suttas, it'll be a surprise for some of you, on the five hindrances. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of an introduction to the five hindrances for people who are not quite sure what they're about. In Pali they're known as the Nivaranas and uh, that translates uh, literally as an obstruction and we call them in English a hindrance. And they're a hindrance to... uh, meditation um, as well as to developing insight uh, that points out the relationship actually between meditation and insight you can't have one without the other so in other words samatha which is usually tranquility meditation goes with vipassana in order to get insight one has to become really tranquil really still really peaceful and the things that are actually stopping us from getting peaceful getting still uh, getting calm minds that are powerful and focused are the hindrances so in a very real way the hindrances are actually stopping us from going into deep meditation like jhana and they're also stopping us from developing the insights which lead to enlightenment so they're very they're actually very crucial to the whole path and the overcoming of them is uh, an important thing Um, for everyone actually not only to meditation because as you probably are well aware these hindrances don't just pop up while you're sitting on your meditation cushion or while you're walking on your meditation path they're there uh, all day and we all have predispositions towards one hindrance uh, perhaps more strongly than another though you'll probably find if you look for yourself uh, that all five hindrances appear at some time or other but there will be usually one, I think, that's uh, more predominant uh, for people. So, and the five hindrances, I'll just give you the five hindrances so you uh, know what they are. The first one is sensual desire. Um, this is, I think it's very, Ajahn Brahm usually refers to it as sensory desire. Uh, sensual desire always sounds very full on to me. <laughs> it sounds like one's really taken up, infatuated with somebody which it can be as extreme um, situation. But sensory desire actually points to the fact that it's through the senses. It's any desire through the senses. And as you can imagine, any desire through the senses is actually taking us out into the world rather than in meditation we want to go inwards. So in other words, it's completely the opposite direction to which we wish wish to go. So that's the first one, uh, sensory uh, desire, called Kamachanda in Pali. And the second one is ill will, uh, which is Wayapada. And that's a fairly obvious um, uh, hindrance to our meditation as well. Because if you have ill will, either towards somebody else, uh, towards yourself, uh, or towards meditation, meditation object, that will be a real hindrance to, to, your, uh, to your meditation. It won't go deeper. And the next one, uh, which people may be aware of, is sloth and torpor, which is uh, in Pali, Tina Mida. Uh, and that's the sluggishness of the mind as well as the uh, sluggishness in the body, the drowsiness. Most people are familiar with that because you encounter that. I think most people would encounter that in meditation very regularly. It comes up. And what it, what it manifests as is like, you're meditating and it's very, it may even be very peaceful, but you have no idea. We have no idea what's, what we're doing, where we're up to, whether we're watching the breath or we're in the present moment or whatever. So that's um, uh, sloth and torpor. The next one is called restlessness and worry, uh, uticha and kukacha in Pali. And um, 
it's often translated as restlessness and remorse. So restlessness we're very uh, familiar with in a sense and it's a very big hindrance that we can't stay still because the mind is always moving on to something else, looking for something better than the present moment. And remorse is usually, or um, worry is usually, the example they give is um, concern about what we've done through body and speech. And it's usually uh, to do with precepts, either for a lay person or for a monk or a nun. Um, I often think that's more of an example because, to me, the translation worry is worry is a very similar state to me uh, in, in uh, energy to restlessness. It keeps you going backwards and forwards with something you can't put down, you can't let alone, leave alone. And remorse is a good example because we all know that uh, some things we've done that keep popping up in the mind. And if they're pretty uh, uh, things we find very difficult uh, or or very harmful to ourselves or to other people, then they will occur again and again. So uh, I quite like worry for that. And the last one is doubt. And that that doubt can also be uh, doubt about the um, Buddha's enlightenment, the teachings of the Buddha, the Sangha, but also um, things like uh, doubt about ourselves, our own abilities, uh, and also um, doubt when we get into the meditation because you can start wondering is this you know, jhana or is this not jhana or anything like that. So that's different forms of doubt. So now I'll start with the uh, first sutta. What I was going to do is just um, introduce uh, what are the causes for the uh, five hindrances for their arising read that from one sutta and then go on to another sutta that talks about the, the five hindrances and gives beautiful similes for the five hindrances. So I thought it was important to uh, look at what gives rise to the arising of the five hindrances. It's interesting, in one sutta it actually says that the five hindrances are the nutriment for ignorance, for avijja which is really the whole beginning of the process, as it were, of dependent origination. So it's a really important, uh, important subject and vital for liberation as well as for our meditation and happiness. So, and in addition to that, it said, this is an interesting one, that the nutriment for the uh, five hindrances is um, unwholesome acts through body, speech and mind. So it's, it really does relate to our daily life as well not just to the cushion. So the things we do uh, during the day through our body, speech and mind, the habits of mind particularly, uh, reinforce, strengthen, feed, uh, develop, cultivate the hindrances. So uh, that's quite an interesting, uh, an interesting thing that the Buddha said. So we get an idea of where they're coming from. The uh, suttas that I'm going to read come from the numerical discourses which people may be familiar with. These are... Uh, only a selection from that uh, collection of discourses and it's called the numerical discourses because they're arranged by number so you have the four noble truths the eightfold actually the eightfold paths not under the eightfold paths under the tenth um, things like that uh, so uh, I'll first of all read as I said the um, sutta that describes how these things come about when the Buddha talks about their general cause their underlying cause so This is uh, called Abandoning the Hindrances uh, and it's uh, number two selection in this book. It says, 
The Buddha here is talking about each of these things as no other thing. No other thing do I know, O monks, on account of which unarisen sensual desire arises and arisen sensual desire increases and and becomes strong. So much as on account of this, a beautiful object. A beautiful object in Pali is subhanimata, which actually means not so much a beautiful object as a uh, sign of beauty. So what the Buddha is actually talking about there is more like the mental uh, sign that comes up in our minds when we see something that we register as beautiful. Because obviously, in a way, objects aren't beautiful or um, not beautiful. It's what we give, uh, the designation we give them that makes them beautiful. So it's really the sign of beauty. So it can be various objects. For one who attends improperly to a beautiful object, unarisen sensual desire arises and arisen sensual desire increases and becomes strong. And uh, the key words there is attends improperly, which probably many of you know about is uh, uh, unwise attention is another translation. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is now using careless attention. And usually um, they they say that uh, unwise attention is seeing uh, permanence in the impermanent, seeing happiness in suffering or unsatisfactoriness, and uh, seeing self in not-self, and seeing the beautiful in the not-beautiful. Um, so that's, and also just, uh, in a sense, not seeing how things truly are. That's, that's a very good uh, overall description of it. And particularly uh, one of the things, one of the areas that uh, we uh, attend improperly is not seeing the, um, the wholesome and the unwholesome, not being able to distinguish. That's particularly important. And the reason um, we, don't, we can see permanence in the impermanent and so on is because these hindrances are, are overwhelming the mind. So as I go along, if people have any questions, I'll just pause, or if you've got any comments, because sometimes people make some really good comments about uh, uh, a passage. Page 34, Ainsley, yeah, page 34, that is. So that's uh, sensual desire, how that arises. And when, when we say a beautiful object too, it can be, I think it's pointing at anything that's attractive, and it doesn't have to be only through um, it's any of the senses. So in other words, it's not only a beautiful forms like a beautiful person or a person one finds beautiful. It can be beautiful sounds, smells, tastes and touches as well. So it can be a whole range of, of uh, beautiful um, uh, inputs, as it were, or sensory contacts. And then the Buddha says, No other thing do I know, O monks, on account of which unarisen ill will will ill will arises and arisen ill will increases and becomes strong so much as on the account of this a repulsive object for one who who attends improperly to a repulsive object unarisen ill will arises and arisen ill will increases and becomes strong again the repulsive object is really any object that we find unattractive uh, that we find displeasing and again that will be uh, a very personal thing, that would be a mental thing really uh, as to what we find unpleasant what we can uh, be irritated by, anger can arise from it can be the whole range ill will really covers a whole umbrella of um, negative mind states 
So it can be any of those things. Right, anybody got any comments about ill will? No. Um, no other thing do I know amongst on account of which unarisen sloth and torpor arises and arisen sloth and torpor increases and becomes strong so much as on account of this listlessness, indolence, lazy stretching of the body, drowsiness after meals, mental sluggishness. For one with a sluggish mind, unarisen sloth and torpor arises and arisen sloth and torpor increases and becomes strong. I think we all <laughs> can easily understand that one. That's a very straightforward one. But, uh, particularly, this is a, it does show the connection between the body and the mind, doesn't it? But particularly with eating, if, and this is something that monks are more prone to because we eat large meal, uh, because we're eating a main meal, only one main meal a day, you have to be careful not to eat too much, otherwise the, um, the mind will be affected by having too much in your stomach. It's, it definitely does. And it also, also points out that uh, where we incline the mind is very important. So if we, if we um, as it were, focus it on this um, uh, sluggishness of the body, uh, uh, incline in that direction, make it our focus, then uh, it becomes stronger. Anything about sloth and torpor comments or... No other thing do I know, O monks, on account of which unarisen restlessness and worry arises, and arisen restlessness and worry increases and becomes strong, so much as on account of this, an unsettled mind. For one with an unsettled mind, unarisen restlessness and worry arises, and arisen restlessness and worry increases and becomes strong. And again, this is really pointing at the root cause for restlessness and worry, the fact that the mind is unsteady, um, is unsettled. And naturally, you can, see, you can immediately see that a, a meditative mind, a peaceful mind, is a steady mind and uh, a settled mind that will overcome this, uh, this uh, restlessness and worry. It's not really pointing at the specific things that one might be restless about or worry about. It's just giving the underlying uh, cause for it. No other thing do I know amongst on account of which unarisen doubt arises and arisen doubt increases and becomes strong so much as on account of this improper attention. For one who attends improperly to things, unarisen doubt arises and arisen doubt increases and becomes strong. Improper attention, as I mentioned before, which is ayoni so manasikara, is um, seeing the permanence in the impermanent, seeing uh, happiness in suffering, seeing self in non-self, and seeing uh, beauty in non-beauty. So uh, it's those qualities um, that make us interpret uh, what we're experiencing in light of those things. Right. Any comments about uh, doubt? Bichikicha. So that, that gives you the, uh, the causes for the arising of those things. First of all, sensual desire was the, beaut the uh, beautiful object or the uh, sign of beauty in the mind and the uh, arising of ill will was the, the sign of um, unattractiveness, we might say. I don't actually know the parley for that one. And um, 
Sloth and torpor was uh, drowsiness in the body and the mind and uh, restless and worry was unsettled mind and the um, arising of doubt was due to improper attention. So now I'll read the, the main sutta that I was going to go on to talk about today which is on page 142 of the numerical discourses and it's uh, number 111, the five hindrances. It's quite an interesting one. It's a beautiful one actually. It's really nice. On one occasion, the Brahman Sangharava approached the Blessed One and exchanged greetings with him. When they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, he sat down to one side and said to the Blessed One, Master Gotama, what is the cause and reason why sometimes even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited over a long period? What is the cause and what is the reason why sometimes those hymns that have not been recited over a long period recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited? Uh, this is a Brahmin. He, of course, is talking about the Vedas, the, uh, the hymns of the Vedas. It's not a church meeting or <laughs> something like that. It sounds a bit like it's a hymn. Uh, and it's quite an, quite an interesting... He's asking, really, why sometimes one can remember things because, of course, the Vedas were an oral tradition and they uh, passed that down from teacher to student. So, of course, remembering them was absolutely uh, essential and their credentials, as it were, rested on the fact that they could remember the Vedas, the, th- the three Vedas. So um, it was very important to the Brahmins that uh, they'd be able to remember it. It's interesting because in, uh, in Buddhism, when the Buddha uh, laid down the uh, rules for the monks and nuns, that has always been passed on by memory too. Monks, even today, at the Serpentine Monastery, we have the uh, recitation of the rules and it's in Pali, but it's done by memory with someone checking it. And it's pretty good because it goes for almost an hour. So you have to have quite a good memory to, uh, to do that. And the reason I selected the sutta actually was because someone was, uh, one of the monks was doing the patimoka, as we call it, the monks' rules, last Tuesday evening, and we do it on the moon days. And, um, which is a new moon or the full moon and uh, he, he was saying he had a hard time remembering it you know, and the person that was uh, uh, correcting him had a bit more work than usual and immediately said he, he said to me oh I don't know why it was that it was so hard and this occurred to me straight away I thought you know, it must be one of the five hindrances in this sutta um, I thought of because the Vedas is a very similar, similar thing going on and the Buddha replies to that um, Brahman, he first of all talks about why the uh, Vedas or hymns are not remembered and he gives these beautiful uh, similes for the five hindrances and we'll talk a little bit about them. So, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by sensual lust and one does not understand as it really is the escape from a risen sensual lust, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. Then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited over a long period. And that's a, that's a really, um, I mean, it's got quite, quite a lot in that already, to know the escape, and the Buddha is talking about the escape from, uh, in this case, it's called arisen sensual lust, 
but uh, as we were uh, mentioning, sensual desire is often a translation for it, and really sensory desire. So any of the um, any desire that goes towards any of the senses uh, is would would qualify in this case. And it, the Buddha is talking about he does not understand as it really is the escape from uh, arisen sensual desire. Now, when he says the escape. Um, they usually refer to two levels of escape and the first level is actually a temporary escape which you get through uh, meditation, particularly jhana uh, when the hindrances are completely uh, squashed and uh, knocked out as it were and then the permanent uh, uh, escape from it which is when uh, somebody becomes uh, an Aryan either one uh, one of the four levels of uh, um, of enlightenment so uh, that's when they are permanently abandoned so they never recur again after that and the key word here is um, he does not understand as it really is because of course this is the function of the hindrances is to weaken in uh, wisdom they say weakeners of wisdom they describe it so they make things um, very unclear and, and Ajahn Brahm always says that uh, any insight that doesn't have, um, that occurs without the um, five hindrances being abandoned is going to be subject to defilement by these five hindrances. So you can't really rely on it. So one really needs to get them out of the way in order to see things as they really are, for it to be really um, insight. And... Um, so now the Buddha gives the escape from uh, the escape from uh, sensual desire. We can talk about a bit, bit about that. Actually, escape. Another word, another thing I was going to say is is actually nisarana, which is my name. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, quite important for me too. So. Um, now I'll go on with the uh, the simile. We'll talk about the, um, the specifics of uh, the antidotes to these uh, various hindrances a little bit later, hopefully. So, and the, Brahma, the Buddha now gives a beautiful uh, simile. If there's any comments about that or questions, no? that's right. Um, uh, Lynn was just asking whether. You know, for instance, when one's doing an exam, whether uh, it's the reason one can't remember is because one's been hearing too much, seeing too much, and so on. That can be part of it. Of course, the other part of it is that you don't know enough, but <laughs> that can be it too. But uh, yes, the Buddha is saying if one's got that on one's mind, then it'll tend to override. I think what it does is more like it overrides the memory, so it's more it's stronger in the memory and. Uh, causing agitation in the mind as well because the mind is not peaceful. Because I notice that, uh, and you, you've probably noticed it too, if you're peaceful you can access a memory much, much better. But if you're at all agitated, you know, and uh, taken up with any of the senses, uh, particularly in any strong way, then um, that's going to override the attention that you can give to what's in memory. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that's what it's pointing to. I, I, yes, that's right. I think that's the function of a hindrance, actually, is to uh, cloud or override 
the clarity one has. It, it really obscures it. And I think it also points to the fact that we can only really attend to one thing at a time really clearly. And I think that's, uh, you know, particularly with the sensory experiences, um, can be very strong attention to them. Yeah. Yeah, when, that's interesting actually when you get older and memory uh, fades. Does that mean that mindfulness hasn't been developed strongly enough? I think in many cases it, it can be because uh, you probably see um, in our society that there's so, there's so much emphasis on sensory stimulation uh, you know, through um, television, through videos, through CDs. We actually um, in many ways got sensory overload and uh, so our mindfulness, in a sense, becomes definitely very clouded because uh, you know, we're so much used to this stimulation. We're not very often in the moment not uh, uh, experiencing the present moment clearly because we're um, very much distracted by our sensory uh, input. So yes, I think that is, it is, a, it is something that um, you see. And as you get older, if you haven't done training in uh, mindfulness, it's, uh, it's much harder. And your, your uh, mindfulness and your memory will suffer. Uh, so I think as we do get older, our memories are not quite as good as they were <laughs> when we were young. So. Then it's just asking whether the Lord would have made a uh, distinction between long me- a long-term memory and short-term memory. I don't know myself of any uh, sutta or... Um, discourse about different types of memory there may be because you know when you come from a tradition that's very oral then memory is absolutely crucial I mean the whole teachings rest on remembering you know for the first 400 years they weren't written down so they had a series of monks and nuns that would take responsibility for different parts of the suttas and they'd remember them and recite them so really memory is absolutely vital to that process so I suspect that they were uh, very knowledgeable about memory and about how to get things uh, from short-term memory into long-term memory, which is one of the, the, the big things that uh, is important. Mm. I think they must have had phenomenal memories because they say um, Venerable Ananda uh, could remember, he remembered most of the discourses that we have of the Buddha and that's a huge number. So that's... I'll go on with a simile now. Suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water mixed with lac, I don't know what that is, turmeric, blue dye or crimson dye. If a man with good sight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by sensual lust, uh, and one does not understand, as it really is, the escape from a risen sensual lust. On that occasion, one neither knows nor sees, as it, as it really is, one's own good, or the good of others, or the good of both. Then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period of time do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited. So that's a really lovely simile, and it gives you the, gives you the, um, uh, the uh, information that it's, really what it's doing, uh, sensual desire or sensory desire, is colouring the mind so that it's really obscuring the mind. And you can see that, you know, I mean, everybody probably has experienced uh, when somebody's in love or in lust, whichever, (laughs) 
it may not be much of a difference. Um, they're, they're very, it's very coloured. The experience is very coloured. You know, one can't see anything at all wrong with this person and uh, there's no uh, fault finding at all, which is a nice thing. And um, it, it's, it's very, as it were, coloured completely, completely coloured. And uh, just as when somebody has a lot of ill will in the mind, that's all they can see. You know, they can only see these negative qualities about that person. Um, but when there's a sensual lust, it will always be seeing a very attractive quality in the, um, the form, the uh, form or the uh, sound or the smell, taste or touch. Um, and it's interesting too because, uh, as Ajahn Brahm points out, that the the uh, the idea of water too is often like a bowl of water, a lake of water, is often a symbol for the mind. So not being able to see the reflection of your face in, a, say, a bowl of water is like um, the mind not being, able to, uh, not being able to become still during meditation so that one can see, as it were, the samadhi nimitta, the, the uh, sign of uh, concentration arising. So the mind isn't still. So in a very real sense, when the mind becomes really peaceful, as in jhana and very deep meditation, what the mind sees is itself a reflection of itself. So... In this example, the Buddha is pointing to the fact that uh, with this hindrance, there's no way you can see your face. There's definitely no way you can see your mind. So that's quite interesting. Again, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will, and one does not understand, as it really is, the escape from arisen ill will, on that occasion, one neither knows nor sees, as it really is, one's own good. Uh, or the good of others, or the good of both. Then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period of time do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited. Suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water being heated over a fire, bubbling and boiling. If a man with good sight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will and one does not understand as it really is the escape from arisen ill will, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. Then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited for a long period. And uh, that's, I think ill will is one of those, uh, uh, is, is something that people, if it's very strong, of course, towards other people, that will hinder meditation. Um, but also, uh, as I was mentioning before, ill will can be towards ourselves. And uh, that, that can be uh, like just a negative frame of mind towards ourselves, you know, um, perhaps being uh, doubt, uh, well, actually that would come under doubt too, um, being negative about ourselves, maybe feeling guilty about ourselves or thinking we don't have the necessary qualities or um, just, yeah, having ill will towards ourselves is uh, uh, not an uncommon thing that comes up uh, in meditation. It can also be ill will towards uh, the meditation if one hasn't experienced any happiness for a while. You know, you can start to feel, well, why am I doing this? You know, this is, this is hopeless and... Uh, Therefore, you can have ill will towards the meditation. 
so these are obviously uh, you know, big obstructions to uh, getting more peaceful and uh, allowing the mind to go into deep meditation. Um, any comments on ill will? Yeah. That's a very, very good question because, of course, it's a very common one that comes up with all of us that uh, there is uh, noise and distractions. And you probably notice in your meditation that there is a disturbance from the noise for sure that that, that does uh, impact. But I find uh, of greater impact usually is the resistance to that or the negativity, the ill will towards it actually. <laughs> that really causes the ruffles in the mind. And uh, if one can be. Um, as it were, have equanimity towards it. That's that's probably the best. Uh, I suppose if you can actually do something about it, that's number one. If you can't, then equanimity is really the best thing, and that that usually means just like letting it be, not as uh, as the um, forest uh, teaches you say, not going out and disturbing it, as Ajahn Chah would say, because that's the thing with with any of these sensory. Um, uh, um, sensory things that disturb us. We're actually, as it were, going, really going out to them and making a disturbance with them rather than them actually disturbing us. So I know it's harder to meditate, uh, with, definitely with sound, loud sounds particularly. But of course, if you can be at peace with it, that's, that's the, the best way possible. Yeah, yeah definitely. So it's, um, yeah, no, it's a very good, very good question. And, and ill will does arise very obviously in that case. Yeah, that's right. No, no, I've got the got the point. Yeah, did the Buddha also recommend, um, apart from uh, meditating in very quiet places, being able to meditate in very noisy places, or not in, uh, in everyday life in situations where there is quite a bit of noise, um, so that uh, one can develop a certain strength uh, and ability to deal with those those noises. But most of my reading actually suggests that he he really did advise very quiet places but that when one's meditation became uh, very, very peaceful, one was able to access deep states, then it didn't make any difference because you probably remember uh, on a number of occasions in the suttas that the Buddha said that he was meditating during a, one occasion, during a lightning storm, during a very violent storm when two farmers, he was staying in a barn at that time and two farmers were killed and some animals were killed not very far from him and it was a terrible storm. And he came out in the morning and people uh, said, well, did you hear the storm? You know, there were two farmers killed and there were a couple of, and some animals were killed and everything. And the Buddha said, no, I didn't hear any storm, not at all. And they said, were you asleep? No, he said, no, I wasn't asleep. And were you unconscious? No, I wasn't unconscious. He was in meditation. And obviously, when your meditation goes that deep, it doesn't matter where you meditate. You know, you can obviously um, cut, cut out all the noise once you go into a jhana state. There is no noise. But before that, the Buddha always said that um, noise is a thorn, particularly he even said that noise is a thorn to the first jhana. And um, on one occasion praised some monks who were staying in, I think it was in a monastery in Wesali, and uh, there were a lot of um, the local people riding their chariots around and, and uh, carrying on and making a great deal of noise in this monastery. And so they just moved and the Buddha praised them for moving actually to a quieter environment. Yeah. So it is very important, particularly when we're starting our meditation, to have a quiet environment. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> but 
at the same time, I think you do learn a great deal, um, as Barbara was saying, you know, from uh, some of the sensory uh, inputs you've got, you experience, not only sound, but, you know, um, even aches and pains in the body and so on. You learn a certain amount of equanimity, letting go, letting be. Uh, and that is actually the way into deep meditation. So you could say it's not wasted by any means and one shouldn't think of it as um, you know, completely uh, ruining the meditation and developing uh, negativity towards it. Because you can develop, you know, as I say, equanimity and letting be is fantastic. That's, that's the way. So. Uh, yeah. so that was... Uh, ill will like a boiling water again Brahman when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by sloth and torpor and one does not understand as it really is the escape from arisen sloth and torpor on that occasion one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind let alone those hymns that have not been recited. Suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water covered with water, water plants and algae. If a man with good sight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by sloth and torpor, and one does not understand as it really is the escape from sloth and tor- arisen sloth and torpor, on that occasion, one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. Then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited. And that's a really lovely image for uh, sloth and torpor, that it just covers the mind over and uh, uh, covers the uh, water so you cannot see, just as the mind that has sloth and torpor, you probably notice it's very hard when you have sloth and torpor to, to get out of it, as it were. The mind is, another symbol the Buddha used was like prison. It's just confined. It's very uh, very narrow. And in some ways it can be quite comfortable um, and quite peaceful, but it's, it lacks any awareness whatsoever. It's just, uh, in some ways it's like um, ill will towards uh, the meditation object or uh, towards the meditation and you're going into sloth and torpor like the mind just doesn't want to do it so it goes into sloth and torpor and um, becomes completely dull, clouded over, very grey and um, when the mind's like that, confined like that of course there's no awareness and uh, it can be very peaceful and can last for quite a long time but the, uh, of course the antidote to that is to initiate energy and that is very hard when you're in that uh, slothful state. But we can talk about some of the antidotes to it when I get to the uh, abandoning the hindrances part. And then another important thing in recurring in all these as you probably uh, gathered was that one does not uh, know one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. And that's, that's like a, a definition actually almost of virtue uh, of uh, morality too that we should whatever our actions are they should be for our own good for the good of others and for the, the good of both so we're not uh, we're taking everyone into consideration we're not sacrificing our own good we're not, we're not doing it for everybody else's good only we're doing it for our good their good and uh, uh, for both the good of both
Right. So now the next one we go on to is restlessness, restlessness and worry. Again, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by restlessness and worry, and one does not understand, as it really is, the escape from arisen restlessness and worry, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees, as it really is, one's own good, or the good of others, or the good of both. Then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited. Suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water stirred by the wind, rippling, swirling, churned into wavelets. If a man with good sight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by restlessness and worry, and one does not understand as it really is the escape from the arisen restlessness and worry on that occasion one neither sees nor knows as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind let alone those that have not been recited I think that uh, restlessness restlessness and worry is uh, pretty much uh, something we're also uh, very familiar with in meditation restlessness particularly is a very big hindrance in the sense that we're not happy with where we are, we want to be somewhere else, as it were, mentally. So the mind just keeps flipping, moving on to something else. Some, rather than staying with uh, the stage of meditation we're in, we're at, whether it's the present moment or the silent present moment or uh, the attention to the breath or full attention on the breath, it won't stay with that. It's just going on to different, um, uh, different stimulus, different objects in the mind, it's just skipping. It wants to. Usually, it's to. It's thinking of things in the future, anticipating things in the future, and often uh, the things that the mind gets restless about uh, can be even sensory experiences. You know, uh, nice things we want to see, smell, taste, or touch. Um, it can be any any number of things. And uh, restlessness, as I said, mainly it seems to be a lot of that. It's about the future, and worry often is a lot about what we've done, about the past. Uh, which won't give us any peace either and we keep going over it and uh, that's obviously churning up the water like the wind you know that can't can't become peaceful can't become still and um, is a great hindrance to uh, the mind settling so that we can actually see the mind so anything about restlessness and worry no no and Brahman, when one dwells with a mind ob- obsessed and oppressed, I like this, <laughs> by doubt, and one does not understand as it really is the escape from a risen doubt, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both, then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited. Suppose, suppose Brahman, there is a bowl of water that is turbid unsettled, muddy, placed in the dark. If a man with good sight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by doubt, and one does not understand as it really is the escape from arisen doubt, on that occasion one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. Then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, 
let alone those that have not been recited. And uh, this, as I said, uh, doubt doubt can take uh, many, many forms. And of course, the doubt about uh, the Buddha's teachings, uh, the Buddha, you know, his enlightenment, was he really enlightened? Uh, Buddha's teachings, do they really work? Um, are they really true? Uh, the Sangha, are they really enlightened? Doubt about one's own abilities, you know, I don't think I can do it or it's too much or um, any of those sorts of things. And also doubt about uh, what one's experiencing meditation, you know, uh, know, what, for instance, you know, the example I gave before, am I in jhana or or is this upachara samadhi or uh, what uh, what shall I do next? That's another sort of form of a doubt too that comes up. And very important, I mean... A very important uh, antidote for that, of course, is knowing the teachings and knowing the instructions very well um, and developing confidence from your own experience in uh, meditation because that's actually the, uh, the best way to undermine doubt, of course, is to know from your own experience you've had good experiences with meditation and so this is a worthwhile thing to do. So uh, that, that is a really strong antidote to, to doubt itself. And I'll go into the antidotes uh, in a minute, actually, too. So, no. So this finishes the uh, this section. This Brahman is the cause and reason why why even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited. Now I'll go back to the um, sutta that I started with, which described the uh, the hindrances, the arising of the causes for it. And this is where you get the second half gives you the uh, the means for abandoning abandoning these um, hindrances. Right here we go. No other thing do I know, O monks, on account of which unarisen sensual desire does not arise, and arisen sensual desire is abandoned. So much as an account of this, a foul object. This is. Um, uh, a subanimata. This is, you could say, um, often translated as an unattractive uh, uh, sign of the unattractive. Uh, it takes in meditations like the, particularly the meditation on 31 parts of the body, and uh, extra part that was added, the 32 parts, is uh, meditation on the unattractiveness of the body. So this would particularly be an antidote to, for instance, someone that has an infatuation for another person's body. If you just run through the um, meditation on the unattractiveness of the body, then that will lessen immediately uh, a lot of uh, lust, a lot of desire. And when it's interesting because when the Buddha taught the uh, um, meditation on the unattractiveness of the body, and many of you will have read it, to me, it doesn't sound like a... Um, often it's called loathsomeness or repulsiveness, but it doesn't sound particularly loathsome or repulsive because the Buddha describes it as the method as being like a person examining a sack which has uh, an opening at each end and looking at the various types of grain in it. So he's saying, you know, these are lentils, these are paddy rice, this is red rice and so on. And in the same way, we should look at our bodies, the outside and the inside, but that doesn't sound particularly uh, repulsive or um, loathsome to me. It just sounds like almost scientific. You're just looking at the uh, the organs and uh, the parts of the body, uh, that uh, just going through them, as it were. I know uh, Ayakima had a very good uh, um, 
way of teaching that where she'd teach uh, people to do the outside and then to imagine they had a zipper down the front of the body and then take organs out and pop them out, see them on the bench. Uh, but she would always say at the end of it, don't forget to put them back in. <laughs> put them. Oh yes, please do. Lynn's just saying we'd have to be a more of a neutral um, feeling towards the body rather than you know, a strong negativity, otherwise it would go towards ill will. I think that's quite true because um, I, I remember reading, and you've probably read too at the time of the Buddha, he did teach this meditation and then he went on retreat and he came, came back and found that many monks had actually suicided. So obviously it had the wrong, um, wrong effect or they'd taken it in a very negative sense. And uh, that's when he taught the meditation on the breath because he realised that, um, you know, that they'd gone overboard really. And in a way, if you're going towards uh, negativity in, to that extent, I would, I would say that's probably unwholesome if you're taking your life. The Buddha said that uh, for an enlightened person to take their life, that's not a problem, that, that's okay. But... For somebody that isn't enlightened, which many of these monks presumably weren't, then uh, it would be an unwholesome thing to do. And depending on how much negativity in their mind, uh, wouldn't be so good for their next rebirth. So yes, it would be, uh, I think, uh, a negative state of mind. You could could engender a negative state of mind. So, so we've got, uh, on account of this, a foul object. For one who attends properly to a foul object, unarisen sensual lust does not arise and arisen sensual desire is abandoned. So this is really pointing at the fact too that when you say a foul uh, object, just seeing the unattractiveness too in some of the objects that we take to be attractive is, uh, is an antidote. Because obviously if you're attracted to something, you're only seeing the uh, beautiful, the pleasant side of it. But if you can see the other side of it, um, then you're actually restoring a sort of balance to the mind that it's not, it's not being pulled towards or hopefully not being repelled from, you know, just sort of more equanimous. Um, and I'll just read the uh, commentaries actually give, they give, uh, of course, more information. They give lots of uh, uh, other things that one can do um, in terms of um, uh, combating sensual desire. And they make the interesting co- comment here in the notes that originally uh, a subha was usually um, refer- re- um, really referred to in the original suttas as the meditation or contemplation of the 31 parts of the body and later became associated with the uh, meditations on the corpse meditations, you know, the body in different stages of decomposition after it's died. But it says there are six things that one can do um, that will combat sensual desire. And that's, first of all, learning the foulness object, which is like learning the parts of the body, you know, and just... It's quite interesting because uh, we... Um, uh, I chant that most days, actually, and just learning the uh, various parts of the body, it brings to mind, yeah, this body is made up of these things because it's quite remarkable how we can go through daily life and not consider that we're made up of all these uh, organs and lungs and bits and pieces. And uh, it's, it's a good reminder, actually. Uh, devotion to the meditation on foulness, of course. Uh, guarding the sense faculties. So, in other words, um, 
as it were, avoiding things that are going to bring up a lot of um, uh, lust or attraction for them. That are going. To, we know that our minds are going to go out to them. Actually, moderation in food, good friendship. That's always something that um, the Buddha encouraged, like a, a noble friend or a good friend someone that uh, is also involved in the Dhamma, usually involved in the Dhamma, someone who's wise, um, that we can talk to, talk to about the Dhamma and um, get encouragement to. Not only teachers, uh, suitable talk, so talk that doesn't <laughs> dwell on all the sensory experiences. You probably notice in daily life, most people talk about is what they eat, what they see, what they smell, taste and touch. That's what we do. And in a way, it, that's the interesting thing because, of course, most people don't know any other form of happiness, you know, like uh, happiness from uh, meditation, mental happiness. So that's the world uh, they inhabit, and uh, which is, I always feel a bit sad when we get older because our senses start to close down, start to wear out. So, uh, and if we don't have happiness from the mind, you know, if we don't have that inner happiness, then it's pretty tough. So I'll go on with the uh, antidote to um, ill will, which won't surprise you in the least. No other thing do I know amongst on account of which unarisen ill will does not arise and arisen ill will is abandoned, so much as on account of this, the liberation of the heart by loving kindness. For one who attends properly to the liberation of the heart by loving kindness Unarisen ill will does not arise, and arisen ill will is abandoned. Now, the liberation of the heart by loving kindness, as you probably gather, is actually um, taking metta meditation and loving kindness right to jhana. So, the Buddha is actually talking about really, you know, the complete abandoning of ill will, probably all the other, well, definitely all the other hindrances to the other four hindrances. It's, it's taking it to a very uh, deep level, a level, a very profound level. But even um, if we can uh, develop loving kindness to any degree, not necessarily to uh, the level of jhana, it will counteract ill will and uh, make it settle down and uh, may make it possible to go into the deep meditations. So uh, that's, that's what the Buddha is pointing to there. And the other side to uh, loving kind, of course, is it's goodwill and you can develop that goodwill towards yourself um, uh, to um, offset any ill will you might have towards yourself. You know, you might be hard on yourself, down on yourself, negative about your abilities or uh, about the past or whatever. And uh, to have that goodwill, that um, loving kindness is a very good antidote to it. And yes, certainly, Lynn. Just asking when, he's talk, when the Buddha is talk, Lord Buddha is talking about liberation of the heart, is he talking about um, the mind, or is he talking about stream entry? Ah, right. Is he talking about the liberation of the emotional aspects of the mind? Usually, um, talking about the liberation of the mind for sure. And in this case, I mean, it is liberating from that negative emotion of um, ill will, definitely. And that's a, I mean, that's a very destructive one, isn't it? 
So you could say it is actually doing both at, at the same time. It's liberating the mind. When you say liberating the mind, it's, um, as it were, uh, suppressing all the hindrances. And uh, so the mind is freed from the world of the senses for the time of the meditation, freed from the hindrances, all the negativities, uh, both the emotional ones and disturbances in the mind as well. Yep. But the other ones, the, uh, the uh, commentaries come up with as six things that lead to abandoning of ill will are learning the loving kindness object. So just learning about uh, metta is enough to, to limit it, to uh, reduce it. Devotion to the meditation on loving kindness. Reflection on one's responsibility for one's own action. So that's reflecting on karma. And that's actually a very good way to reduce ill will, particularly if you have it towards other people, which can be a disturbance in your meditation for sure, because you realise that karma, uh, karma takes care of uh, that person. If they've done something to you, said something to you, uh, which has been very hurtful, you don't have to get even with them, you don't have to have revenge, because karma, their karma will take care of them. They, they will experience the fruits of their um, actions at some time in the future. It's not so one doesn't really have to, as it were, be, have a vengeful state of mind. You can let let go of things much easier. You realise you don't have a responsibility to get even to uh, square up things with this person. Um, and then uh, the next one is frequent consideration. I'm not quite sure what frequent consideration is supposed to be of. <laughs> but it's probably of loving kindness, one would imagine. Good friendship, because a good friend, someone, <coughs> and we all know this, someone who can give us good advice and also be a steady influence and uh, give us perspective when we are, um, have a lot of ill will is obviously going to be a very good um, uh, benefit because when we have ill will, we've lost perspective completely. You know, the mind's just taken up with that. Uh, and suitable talk, so uh, not talking about uh, things that produce ill will, talking about uh, encouraging harmony, peace, uh, things like that. After ill will is sloth and torpor. No other thing do I know, do I know, O monks, on account of which unarisen sloth and torpor does not arise and arisen sloth and torpor is abandoned. So much as on account of this, the element of arousal, the element of persistence, the element of exertion. For one who has aroused energy, unarisen sloth and torpor does not arise and arisen sloth and torpor is abandoned. I think that's pointing to the crucial place of energy in, uh, in counteracting sloth and torpor. When the Buddha talks about these three different stages of it, um, he's really referring to uh, initiating it when he says the element of arousal is like actually just getting the impetus to, to, to uh, arouse energy, getting some idea of doing something, uh, which is quite hard when you're in sloth and torpor. I don't know if you've experienced, but I have where you sit there and you just can't think of anything. I mean, you might think that's quite a good quality, but you can't think of any way of getting out of it. You just can't initiate energy to counteract it. I mean, there are many things one can do, but uh, at that stage, you just, just to initiate that uh, uh, element of arousal, trying to arouse energy is quite difficult. And um, the element of persistence is having sort of aroused it to keep it going and then the element of exertion is actually to use it for some purpose to develop more energy. And things, one, one can do many things actually to develop uh, 
uh, energy in uh, meditation. Ajahn Brahm usually suggests, first of all, to avoid it if possible, to actually get wise to sloth and torpor, dullness and drowsiness, see it coming and avoid it. And he likens that to a snake. If you knew there were snakes around, then you would definitely keep an eye out, you'd watch out for them. And you'd realise when there was a snake there, you had to avoid it, jump over it, go, go a different way. So that obviously is the best way. But if it has arisen, uh, and it's still very hard to think of these things, he recommends counting the breath. So uh, when you breathe, if you're doing the breathing meditation, one when you breathe in, one when you breathe out, two when you breathe in the next time, two when you breathe out, up to nine. And then start again at one, go to eight. Start again at one, go to seven, and just keep going. Uh, I've done that myself actually it's really good to do because you realise uh, when sloth and torpor is around and many times I've thought oh no I'm clear you know I, I can do this quite easily and you find if there is sloth and torpor there before you know it confused you've lost your place and uh, you have to start again at one so that's good and um, the other things that I, I quite like is uh, doing some chanting you know if you know any chants bring them to mind that gives you a lot of energy actually particularly if they're um, uh, the Buddha's words, that's great. Um, uh, the Buddha actually recommended to Venerable Mahamogalana, one of his chief disciples, 11 different techniques for overcoming uh, sloth and torpor. And some of them consisted of things like uh, looking at bright lights is very good. You know, he suggested starlight or any, any bright light, like a candlelight. If you find you're prone to sloth and torpor, meditate with a light on. It's much better. Um, you can also, the Buddha recommended splashing your face with water. Pulling your earlobes is supposed to be good. I haven't done that much. <laughs> uh, walking meditation, if, if you really are um, very, very uh, drowsy, is very good. Because they all, all meditation masters say, don't get into the habit of... Uh, sloth and torpor because it becomes very strong and you just go into it automatically and they say go against it as much as possible and uh, walking meditation is a good way obviously you know but uh, and also a very very important way is not to make yourself too cozy when you're meditating (laughs) because if you're wrapped up in blankets and uh, very very warm and cozy then it's much easier to get drowsy really is but you don't have to take it to the extreme and uh, meditate naked or be totally cold and because uh, that won't be very good either you'll probably find actually it's interesting when we have uncomfortable in the body um, we have un- unpleasant uh, sensory experience then you find ill will arises too you know you get this negativity in the mind very common actually so and uh, I'll tell you what the commentaries say is really good for sloth and torpor they say six things again. Avoidance of overeating, yeah, that's very good. Changes of posture, so that's like uh, doing walking meditation. Um, or even standing is good, but that's pretty heavy duty if people have ever tried standing meditation. That's very good. Uh, attending to the perception of light, that's, that's good, like I was talking about um, starlight and so on. Dwelling out in the open, yeah, fresh air is great. And good friendship is good too because... Um, if you have a good friend uh, talking about how to arouse energy and um, uh, lively states of mind. And uh, you notice that in um, very good meditators, think of Ajahn Brahm, high energy people. <laughs> so that's good. And suitable talk. Uh, so I sp- talk about, um, t- about producing energy rather than about um, 
being laid back and lying on a banana lounge or the sofa or, or whatever, you know, talking about things that require energy. And getting close to the... No other thing do I know, O monks, on account of which unarisen restlessness and worry does not arise, and arisen restlessness and worry is abandoned, so much as on account of this, a pacified mind. I've also heard peaceful mind for that one, that's quite nice. For one with a pacified mind, unarisen restlessness and worry does not arise, and arisen restlessness and worry is abandoned. Um, when they say uh, a pacified mind, they usually mean, you know, like a, a mind that's settled in any of the tranquility meditation. So like the breath would uh, be a very good way to uh, tranquilize the mind. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be to the level of, um, of jhana or something like that. Obviously, that's the, the most sort of pacified uh, form, uh, most peaceful form of mind that you can develop. Also, with restlessness, I know Ajahn uh, Brahm always encourages us, and it's really important for meditation, is contentment. Because restlessness is not happy with what we're experiencing here and now, the present moment. So it's always wanting something else. So if we can develop contentment with what we have, what we're experiencing, even though it may not be jhana, even though it may not be magapala, the enlightenment experiences, to be content with it will actually deepen the meditation. Because we're all very prone to think, well, this is not good enough, you know, I, I could improve my meditation, um, it could be better in this way, there's something, you know, I could be more in the present moment. But just to be happy with what one has, what, what one is experiencing will take one deeper. And uh, with um, worry, often just um, uh, with worry, knowing a bit more, say, for instance, about uh, what's wholesome and unwholesome about the about uh, precepts and so on, can counteract at least remorse, so that the mind is not uh, it's got some basis for cutting away at at worry, and also, in a way, uh, particularly with worry, forgiveness is a very important thing too, because we all realise we've made mistakes and everybody makes mistakes. So we should forgive ourselves and not uh, go over it again and again as worry does. It just keeps going over like a broken record. So, And I'll just read what the uh, commentaries say for uh, abandoning restlessness and uh, remorse or worry. And it says much learning, so that's much learning about... Um, uh, particularly about um, uh, sealer, about precepts, investigation, uh, familiarity with the vinaya, so that's like the precepts and the rules for monks and nuns, association with mature people, people who are not restless and, um, and worried, that have got a, um, a sort of a, a balance in their minds that are peaceful, that uh, are not uh, running off to the future or, or worried about the past. Good friendship. So someone who uh, knows a lot about the Dhamma, who we can talk to about the Dhamma, who, in, who we can share with a great deal, action can inspire us. Um, and suitable talk uh, uh, about, presumably about more peaceful things, you know, calming things rather than about <laughs> exciting things or things that can lead to agitation. And it says, of course, the restlessness and is, is abandoned by uh, becoming an arahant. So that's very, very full enlightenment. 
and remorse by the path of non-returning. That's the um, anagami, the stage just before full enlightenment. So uh, those things, uh, any tranquil meditation too will also counteract that, the breath, um, walking meditation and so on. Uh, so you bring peace to the mind, contentment to the mind and forgiveness to the mind, very important. And the last one. No other things do I know, O monks, on account of which unarisen doubt does not arise, and arisen doubt is abandoned, so much as on account of this proper attention. For one who attends properly to things, unarisen doubt does not arise, and arisen doubt is abandoned. And as I mentioned, proper attention is um, seeing, proper attention is the op- opposite of improper attention or unwise attention and it's seeing the impermanent in the impermanent, suffering in suffering, uh, non-self in non-self, and um, what is not beautiful in what is not beautiful. So that, that is uh, a wise attention and counteracts those sorts of doubts that I was saying, you know, uh, they're more like doubts about the teachings, uh, teachings of the Buddha, what they exactly are, because there is a lot of confusion, actually a lot of doubt, uh, about that. We're very lucky these days because we have um, good translations of what the Buddha taught. So we are in a very fortunate position that we can become uh, much clearer about what the Buddha taught. And also uh, there can be doubt about um, uh, the Buddha's enlightenment and uh, the teachings, whether they really work. But as I said, the, one of the big antidotes is our own experience because we can experience in meditation some happiness and peace and of varying degrees and from that we can develop confidence or faith yes this is something that is going in a a good direction you know it's leading me in a positive direction and we can also develop um, confidence in our own abilities that uh, we can um, we're capable of developing this meditation we're capable of developing enlightenment because the Buddha encouraged us uh, in that direction and pointed out that it's a process, it's not a matter of individual abilities or predisposition that we can all develop um, our meditation and develop uh, enlightenment. And, and the other one was the doubt about the, uh, what we're experiencing in meditation to, that um, uh, what, is, what, what stage we're at, what we should do next and so on. And again, a very good thing for counteracting that is being familiar with the meditation instructions particularly uh, so that we, we don't have to, to uh, doubt it and also being, uh, as it were, content <laughs> with where we're at, not, not trying to, as it were, go, go ahead of ourselves, get ahead of ourselves. I'll just read what the uh, commentary says for um, abandoning doubt. It says pretty much the same actually as the last one, much learning so uh, knowing a lot about the Buddha's teachings and about the precepts, investigation. So we're actually, because um, that's one of the things with doubt. It's interesting, isn't it? We hardly ever doubt doubt. We hardly ever investigate it. So uh, we always sort of you know, take, uh, believe doubt. It's quite an interesting thing. So uh, the idea of doubting doubt is quite, quite an interesting way of looking at it. So we actually probe doubt. Uh, familiarity with the vinaya, that's the, like the precepts for um, lay people, monks and nuns. Resoluteness, so that's 
like a steadiness of mind because you can see it's the same with um, restlessness and um, worry. The mind can have a predisposition to being uh, sort of unsteady and it can just latch on to doubt or restlessness and remorse. So if we have like a mind that is strong from meditation, it tends to be steady and not so given to um, uh, taking up doubt or restlessness and remorse. So that's uh, quite good. Good friendship, so um, a good Dhamma friend or someone who is uh, you know, a spiritual person uh, that we can share with is, is very good too because we can resolve our doubts and uh, they can also encourage us, which is good. And uh, suitable talk, so uh, talking about, just discussing Dhamma really, is, is a, it would be suitable talk, going into it in some depth. So we can resolve our doubt. We can actually can ask a teacher or we can look at the books. And uh, doubt is fully abandoned by the stream entrer. That's uh, where um, all doubt about the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, the teachings and the Sangha, particularly those three, uh, completely abandoned. So they say that a stream entrer has full confidence, you know, has an unshakable confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha because they, they know from their own experience. They don't, they don't have to take it on faith any longer uh, that the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha really work and are a reality. They know it. So that's, uh, that's uh, marvellous. Any questions about Dao's? saying uh, just an observation that we should approach body uh, contemplation with uh, wisdom and very carefully I th- I th- it's, a, it's a contemplation actually the Buddha encouraged a lot and I think it's one uh, we can well do with developing it's not so popular in the west um, but I think actually it would be quite a liberating one for us because I think as a culture we're very oppressed by the uh, not so much the uh, inside of the body but the outside of the body image is so so important and people get, you know, they can get very upset and very concerned about it. So in a way, you know, meditation on the body is quite important because it can give rise to a certain dispassion that you realise this is just a body, you know, and it has its own nature and one doesn't need to do all the things that uh, you see done these days, cosmetic surgery and pretty radical things actually, just to make it look a particular way. And I think that actually what we experience in the, the West in terms of you know body consciousness is really oppressive. You know everybody's got to look like a supermodel or a, a superstar or this and that. And uh, anything that actually brings a, a degree of um, a reality, I suppose you say, to to that picture, I think is really valuable. So I think body contemplation is something that actually we, we need to develop in to get a balance. To get a balance. Because also, I mean, in personal terms, we're very attached to the body in a very real way. So uh, I think it's a very good thing to, to contemplate and develop that sort of distance from understanding of, yeah. I'd just like to finish, because it's now 20, 20 past. Just by, there is this um, issue, too, of the Dhamma Journal, where the Buddha, uh, where, not the Buddha, where Ajahn Brahm talks about the five hindrances, and he gives uh, some very good... Uh, uh, suggestions for antidotes to the five hindrances and expresses how important it is to overcome them. I did forget to mention that he, his suggestion for abandoning uh, sensual desire, which is a really good one, is to do it bit by bit. 
and that to abandon the, the world of the five senses, as it were, first of all by coming into the present moment, thereby abandoning the past and the future uh, sensual thoughts, preoccupations, uh, desires. And so you're just in the present moment, that reduces it greatly. And then when you go into uh, silent present moment awareness, abandoning all the thoughts about uh, sensual desire, because many of our thoughts are about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're <laughs> how we're going to make the body more comfortable, you know, the perfect meditation cushion, whatever, stool. Um, so abandoning those. And then when you come to the uh, breath, when you come to the uh, tension on the breath, the present, silent present moment awareness of the breath, then you are abandoning diversity. So you've just left with the breath. That's, the, that's one part of the sensual world, one part of the material world, but it's a very, very tiny part. And then, of course, as you develop the meditation into sustained attention, samadhi, on that breath, then even that breath will disappear and be replaced by the mental, a mental object, uh, whether a uh, visual object or a feeling, a mental feeling. So that's another way of abandoning uh, sensual desire. So it's a, it's a very good way too. So uh, I'd like to finish there. I would just say that the, um, the sutra that I read with the five um, similes, there is the other half of it which I didn't read, which is uh, about um, why uh, sometimes you can remember things but you haven't actually uh, tried to remember, you haven't been remembering for a long time uh, and uh, why they occur quite easily um, when there are no um, obstructions. And the Buddha says, again, using the five hindrances, when these are not present, then these things recur to the mind easily. Even those, even those hymns that haven't been recited for a long time can, be, can come back to the, to the uh, memory. So when the uh, hindrances are out of the way, the mind is clear, peaceful, and uh, can really see things as it is. And also know, most importantly, actually know what's it's one's own good, uh, what's for the good of others, and also for the good of both. Obviously the greatest good is for all of us to become enlightened. <laughs> that is the greatest good and the greatest benefit for others as well, because then we can really uh, contribute and uh, this is where the Buddha is actually pointing to, always pointing to liberation. So, if any questions before we finish? All right, Scott. Scott was just asking about doubting doubt. That could be quite difficult. That could be like the self doubting itself. And uh, did, did the Buddha give any similes uh, for, for doing that? Um, for that investigation, not that I sort of, re not that I can um, recall. Actually, I can't recall <laughs> five hindrances. I can't recall anything that uh, where the Buddha gave um, suggestions for how to doubt doubt. But I've heard it from uh, a few meditation teachers, particularly Anjan Brahm, because uh, it's interesting with uh, with doubt. I mean, we've probably all experienced it. It's funny, you don't, we never doubt doubt. We, sort of, we just sort of have the sinking feeling that it's true. You know, this, this doubt has come up. It must be, it's true. But it never, it's sort of like, it's like sloth and torpor. You have this mental um, blind spot, as it were, or, or um, uh, you've got your vision channeled, very narrow vision. But it, it doesn't occur. That, you know, maybe this is not true. <laughs> maybe this is not the case, you know. Uh, so in a way, we've put faith into doubt. So uh, 
um, just to doubt it, just to put it aside, is, is a good thing to be able to do. But as to specifics from the Buddha techniques and so on, no, no, I can't can't recall any. There may be, because the Buddha addressed so many um, different areas of all, um, practically all the areas of our lives, actually. So, all right. So um, maybe we can uh, finish there and pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Sāmi Sūpādhi pāno 